You're not catching the pre- you're not catching the pre-sunrise uh, meals. Say it again. You're not catching the pre-sunrise meals. Oh, I was. I would eat at three a.m. and I thought you went to sleep at three. And then I would yeah, and then I would go to sleep. Oh, and then you sleep. And then I'd wake up at five to pray, and then I'd sleep for another two and a half hours. Oh boy, <laughs> it's just practice for when you have a baby, right? The two hour intervals. Jay, can we make that the first topic? So you just got done with Ramadan. I think it would be very interesting. Like, give us the biggest insights. Like, it's such an amazing community. Obviously, I, I see all the Premier League footballers breaking their fast in the middle of games, which is, I think, the first time the Premier League had done that, actually allowed the Muslim footballers to break their fast. Are there any, like, fun business things that happen because of Ramadan from, like, a from like a Muslim entrepreneurial creative perspective, because that schedule's nuts. Yeah, there's a few. So I know a couple of friends who work at startups that are like Muslim founded and like a lot of the team is Muslim. Uh, and their schedule is just like you're working from like 11 to four every day, right? Like accepting the fact that like productivity was going to be lower. We could probably get like four good hours out of these guys. Let's just do that and then let them do their thing afterwards, right? So I thought that was really cool. As far as like, at the community level, there's like a couple, I think over the last 10 years, there's been a really interesting Muslim American culture that has like manifested itself during Ramadan that previously didn't exist. Um, so if you go to like a Muslim country during Ramadan, it very much like things are shut down. Uh, like people are just like spending time with their family, like taking a lot of time for like reflection and prayer. People are out at night. Um, but like, because in the U S you're not going to have that same thing, like the culture has to shift a, because like not everybody around you is fasting and B, because like, you still have to go about your, you can't just shut down the country for (laughs) for a month, right? (laughs) You still got to go about your day. So the two big things that I've seen are like, there's a really big, um, like if thought a party culture. So like, I would say 20 out of the 30 days I was invited to somebody's house. Uh, and there was like a lot whether they cooked whether it was the thing like how did my cousins overseas that's not like obviously you go to people's houses here and there but like they were like maybe a handful of times that really like the whole extended family is coming to one person's house every single day and they're all eating together but it's not like oh i'm going to this friend's house and that friend's house and this cousin and that aunt that you know like all over the place all the like the mosques in the city were doing if thought every single night so like on the days where i wasn't going to somebody's house i just like up a few friends and we'd all go to like one of the mosques for free food so there's that aspect of it and then there's like a couple of like Muslim specific businesses so like in Detroit Dearborn because it's like a huge percentage of the city that is uh Muslim um they had a Sabutah so every single night during Ramadan uh from midnight to like 4 30 in the morning there would just be food trucks massive market by Dearborn um and like tens of thousands of people were like descending upon the city from like all over the Midwest <laughs> going to this. Like you had to get tickets just to get in and then you'd buy like your food or whatever. So like that, that's like a very American Muslim thing that definitely doesn't exist. And like now other cities are copying it. Like Dallas, there is one now. There was like a one day one in Cleveland. But Dearborn's like the OG that does it all 30 days, which is pretty cool. Um, there's a company called Launch Good that's the... Um, Kickstarter, but for donations, um, like philanthropy. Uh, 
and a few other like apps have now copied them now where it's like you could automate donations all 30 days of Ramadan. So you could say like, hey, I'm, I'm dropping a thousand dollars this month. It's still across 30 days. And then every day there's like a new like spotlight organization that you're like, donating to. And they have like events around that and stuff. Um, again, very American Muslim thing. And then the last thing is like from just like a, a spiritual religious perspective, like with a lot more media that like previously did not exist again like maybe in the last five years i'd say this really ramped up um so because now like muslims have been in the country for like an extended period of time there are like institutes and like colleges that are just like we have Catholic universities that are now like muslim universities um and those organizations have like mom that are like meritous professors at these uh universities whose goal is like strictly like we are making content right we we're doing research we are trying to figure out like what are the ideas that we need to explain to the american public that are like relevant to like things that are happening today relevant to, to ramadan this year um and like there's youtube channels there's tiktoks there's all sorts of things with every single mosque in chicago every single night had some sort of speaker uh that it was being like recorded or live here so, like that was really cool as well like i feel like i was bombarded with like really high quality media this month uh great good good yeah, that was the still Absolutely, like a really interesting. Oh, last thing actually, because I thought um, the Chicago has a disproportionate amount of young Muslims who are um, who are hafid, and basically that means they have to be memorized the entire Quran from half to bottom. How many words is that? How many is it? I mean, it's a book. It's like it's like so like look from the age of like five or six, they're going to Islamic every other night in addition to going to regular school. Um, with the goal of like memorizing the Quran and then like at 12 or 13 or 14, whenever they actually memorize it, um, like families will throw like a Quran party because you, you, now you have memorized the Quran. And there's like all these, like a lot of virtue that comes with like memorizing the Quran. Um, it's not just like something you do to flex, but in Chicago, because there's such a high percentage of, uh, of people who haven't memorized, uh, during Ramadan, also, there's like a night prayer. So after we eat, like an hour after we eat, a lot of people pull up to the mosque and like pray like 20 cycles. So it takes like an hour and a half to like get the whole thing done. And like, it's not required, but like people like to go every single night because it's Ramadan, but you're like part of the experience. Uh, and they get through the entire Quran from the first day of Ramadan to the last day of Ramadan. They get through the entire Quran during those 20 cycles every night, right? Um, the long story short, uh, in some cities like Youngstown, we don't really have people who have memorized the Quran. So we import Ahmadiyyan <laughs> from Chicago who don't have the opportunity to like do it at a mosque here because there's so many people who haven't memorized. Um, and like they'll be housed in like some family's house for the month and they like get like a, a stipend for the month. Just like be the dude that is reciting the Quran at these night prayers every night. Uh, but then also in Chicago, there's such a surplus that people will just host. It's called Tadawiyah prayer. They'll host it in their backyards. So like different neighborhoods in like the suburbs of Chicago with like really high percentages of like Muslims. Uh, they'll just invite their neighbors and say, hey, instead of going to like the mosque where it's probably super packed, just come to our backyard. Our son has the Quran memorized. He's just going to lead the night. <laughs> right. Um, wow. He was just like, bouncing between people's houses, people he didn't know. Just because he knew that it was there and he just wanted the experience. That's ridiculous, Rico. Yeah. Super cool. Do you, just a fun question to transition. Do you lose weight during Ramadan? No, I gain weight. Interesting. 
Uh, nice smash. So what, how many calories are you taking in that like two hour period? And I ask because I'm cutting for my own weddings. So I'm counting every, right, like every morsel. Between 7.30 p.m. and like 4 a.m. I probably get as many calories as I get in. You're chowing like two, three thousand. Yeah, yeah. But I don't work out. Some people work out during Ramadan. I just can't. It's not that, that lifetime membership. They didn't see you this month. No, I put it on pause. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a dip in gym memberships all over the realm, but there's a rise in food trucks. <laughs> yeah, that's you asked. That's the spiel. That's what happened. Okay, great. Mateo, you're going to go first because I think you're the only guy. I put the topic in the chat and you're off to Vietnam tomorrow. But going deep versus wide, bring us into the latest The Beast. It's been a hell of a start to Q2. I have a bit of an inside loop, but what's prompted this question and how, how's it going working for the biggest creator in the world? It's, uh, it's unique. It's fun. Uh, the reason this question came up is I know that when Jihad and I were at AMA, pretty much everywhere I've been, whether it's AMA, Jelly Smack, Beast, there's always like these kind of pendulum swings, I feel like, of like company initiatives being like, wow, we can play a big role in X, Y, Z, 0, 1, 2, and 3. Let's do it. And then like six months or a year or two years later being like, actually, we need to go deep on what works and just do X. And like, maybe we'll do other things down the line. And it just got me into thinking, I'm curious for you guys' broader takes. I feel like we all have our own examples of like, whether it's at a personal level, at a company level, somewhere in between of like the concept of going deeper versus wider. But I'm thinking more from a company perspective. Like, do we think, is there a pattern of like all of the most successful companies usually start deep, then go wide or whatever the kind of relationship is? I'm curious for your guys' general takes on that, if anyone has any interesting examples. And again, I think from a Beast perspective, Beast is doing like six, there's like six, seven different ventures under the Hold Co. And there's starting to be a bit of a focus of like, okay, but like what's really driving the impact here? And so I'm kind of just seeing the pendulum start to swing a little bit for the first time since being here. And so it just sparks this kind of broader question and insight that I'm curious for your guys' perspective on as well. I'm going to take that as it was a help question. Tell me if I don't have it right, Mateo. <laughs> tell me if I don't have it right. But maybe last year, we tried to... Who's we? CEO and I, right? We're trying to figure out where the most immediate opportunity can be. And right, so real estate was not just one segment, it's multiple sub-segments. So do we go after corporations and their corporate campuses, apartments, offices, life science campuses, industrial even... Do we just try to spray everyone and come up with effective messaging for everyone? And we tried that out for maybe two months, had meetings, on, sometimes on the same day, right? Corporations, Johnson & Johnson, it's in a meeting in the morning, and then you have a developer of an apartment in the afternoon. You have to contact switch, which is incredibly hard when it's super focused, depending on what segment that is. And we just found that like the follow-up and that context switching to make the, the follow-up valuable for the customer or the prospect was a big challenge. So we actually dialed it back and decided to focus on life science and office, <clears throat> specifically new developments. So those are basically, we took that approach of going after everything versus like, let's narrow down and just focus the majority of the week um, on just life science campuses and offices 
And if apartments come in and reach out to us, we came up with a way to just kind of uh, systematically handle that sales process. So we don't have to be too invested in that sale um, because it's not a high dollar amount and it's not a big revenue driver versus office or life science. Um, but it's, it was worth the exercise, I guess. That's one thing I learned too. It's worth the exercise in figuring it out because you can figure it out pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if that's kind of what you're asking, but yeah, I mean, like, I guess it kind of makes me, is there any company that's really successful today that we would all know that started wide and found success through that and then started to go deeper everywhere? Because it feels like usually the playbook is, oh, we figured this thing out. We went hella deep, grew all this market share, had this capital, this excitement. Then we start to expand and branch into like the next phases. And there's just different timelines of when people think they're ready to do that. But like, has there ever been a company that was just like, yeah, we're coming in. Here's eight products. It's working. And then we figure it out and go deeper afterwards. Just to, just to clarify, are you that Beast is big at? No, I think Beast went deep through content, then said, let's do these things. Okay. And now we're saying, maybe we were too early on saying, let's do all these things. And like, let's go back to like core fundamentals and like opportunities. Yeah. Amon, I'm reminded of Blue Ocean Strategy. I know that's that was one of the books you you kind of really recommended. I think my direct answer, Mateo, is I think every business at the beginning purely is like, let's see what works. So there may be six or seven evolutions or pitches of a product. One maybe begins to take off, is more profitable than the other. They see an opportunity to get more market share. And then that becomes the kind of profit center Um and then I do think companies get wide again very naturally because it's like, great, okay, we're paying for our expenses. We've got our headcount set. We're good, but we want to try and take some other risks. So it almost feels like a kind of like oscillation. I feel like it's kind of moments. But no, as I think about some of my, you know, favorite businesses and maybe in the internet area, I know that's a, a big focus of kind of jihad's, you know, life. It's usually just one product that ignites. And it, it sounds like that's what you guys are starting to sense is maybe there's one product in the beast portfolio that deserves more attention than the rest right now. And you can justify that because of the, the ROI that it's generating. Uber is probably a good example. Starting with first getting limo drivers to offer their services via Uber's platform and then expanding out throughout the Bay Area to serve tech workers first to transport them and then throughout greater California they didn't offer shared ride, discounted rides, anybody rides. And they went, and Bill Gurley, that podcast we mentioned, he talks about liquidity by city. So even though they were going wide, it was like, let's nail Cali. Then I think, let's nail LA. I think they had some huge problems in London. So that's an interesting way to think about wide. And I think the point of the Blue Ocean book that Aman recommended is like, an ocean, how wide's an ocean? So if you, if you find an edge... You can go pretty wide, but still be in a pretty niche area if you consider the world's like water mass. And I think that's fairly, I think that's fair for you guys. Um, I think a more interesting question is what prompts a founder to decide whether they go narrow or wide? Is it just the PL or is it what their peers are doing? What's the great point of mind here is like, I want to say the type of organization, but what I really mean is like, are, 
been the case. From what I understand, a lot of these like individual projects that you guys are running are like on off as companies, right? It's not Jimmy uh, as the CEO telling you what to do on a day-to-day basis um, versus a, a software company that says, oh, we're going to have six different products all under the same CEO and we're going to build all of these things at the same time. Um, I think the answer to this question is probably different, right? You've got Billy AUM and you just allocate capital as in like PE or DE fashion to different organizations. Not that's clearly better or worse. I'm not going to make a judgment call, but I feel like the mat is different and like the advice is probably different when we stop the route going back. Yeah, I think that's a good what I just feel like there's so many different areas where like I just see this concept of like deep versus wide like every fucking month. Like you could do this at the personal level of like, what am I learning and focused on that? You could do it at the company level. Like we're talking about, does that mean portfolios of companies versus one company having multiple products? You could even go back to like Rubino, kind of what you were saying, a bit of like from an outreach perspective, do we just go wide, hit 500 people and see what happens? Or do we go deep? Like, and I'm just like, I've never actually put real patterns behind it and like foundational principles. It's just something I've always noticed in passing. And I'm like, I think I'm kind of sick of that. I'm like, I want to have an opinion and just a more, not even an opinion. I just want to pay more attention to this because I think there's some really interesting patterns to notice and pay attention to. And I'm just seeing it in my own life again. And I'm like, damn, like, I just have no idea what to actually think of this beyond, oh, sometimes it's good to do both. It depends on the circumstance. You know what I mean? Yeah. My, How many CEOs did you advise to go deep versus wide? I mean, I think that to me, the obvious answer is go deep first, then go wide. And I think 90% of the time, I think everybody's going to say the same thing, where it's like any big successful company, Apple, Nike, whatever, like they all started with some particular niche and that led them to other things. That being said, I think when it comes to the discovery process, and if you don't have a particular insight about a market, or if you don't have a particular edge or technology that um, you know exactly what the application is, and when you're trying to do discovery, like for me, one of the examples that comes to mind is Twitch. Um, and I don't know every detail of the founding story, but my understanding is that they had this um, product out there. They realized that a particular segment of their customers were doing something in particular on a gaming segment and they doubled down on that and they kind of reinvented the company. Um, and then uh, it's an interesting example of like VC funds, right? Like VC funds are very much wide and then some of those bets pay off and obviously the one company is going to do 90% of their returns. But I think those approaches are like, you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. You don't necessarily have, you can say that, okay, we have some hypotheses we're testing the market and then we're going to see how the market or consumers or users react and then we go deep on that and we kind of double down but i think i mean to me like the question in my mind is like if the obvious answer is go narrow then wide uh and maybe i don't know if anybody disagrees but i think 90 percent of the time that's the right thing to do like i'm curious on your end like what are you, how is that disappointing advice or like, how is that advice that doesn't serve you? Cause like, to me, like 
that's where I'm trying to trying to better. Yeah, no, I like this. So, like, I guess kind of in my head, then, as you're going through this, I almost see startups life cycle a bit of like an hourglass. Like, first you have ideas, but you need to validate them. So you're like playing around, even if it's kind of within like a niche. It's like, is this what people want? Is this what they want? You iterate quickly. You start to narrow down on focus and like really go in, and then eventually, if you keep crushing, pull an apple and like whatever. There's obviously smaller examples. Then you can start to be like, oh, cool, we nailed this, but now we can actually expand into these other areas. No idea if that's actually a good analogy, but that's where my head went. I think the piece for me then is, okay, if 90% of the time start, figure something out, go deep, then start to expand, is when. How do you know what are the levers or the patterns or the triggers that you should look at or have a better understanding to know when it is worth starting to potentially go wide after seeing early success? I think I think you need to know the market super super well. You need to know consumers. You need to know like, are customers pulling you in a certain direction? Are there actual users on the platform or on your product or on in your network that are clamoring for something? Um, I think that's one approach. And then obviously, like, and to me it's interesting because like we're talking, or at least I'm talking about like when you have no distribution, you have very few customers. You have like very early on, you're on the other side and you're trying to innovate at the largest scale where you have massive distribution and you have, and so know what it's like to innovate at a large company. And I'm, I imagine very few people in the world know what that truly looks like. Um, but to me, like, I imagine if you sat down, you just made a list of like the 10 indicators of like, okay, what do I think I would need to see to go why? Like maybe it would be helpful to like use a case study. I don't know if there's something that comes to mind of like, okay, what's, we're trying to decide for this particular business. It doesn't have to be a beast portfolio business. It could be something else, but like, what's a good example? And maybe we can kind of focus around that. I love how Bane driven you are with that. Does anyone have a good example that comes to mind? I think too, just we're diving into that potentially a little bit. I think there's just the added element to of things coming back down to opportunity cost of like, there are some examples of where we're going wide and it's working, but the impact of if actually the, those people and those star players were focused on the core areas where we are going deep, that actually is where you're going to see outsized returns. And again, that's like a classic, I think, concept that people are always thinking about, but that made me think of that as well. Does someone have a good example? Because I would love to just like play around with it a little more. I also know that it's been a half hour, so down if no one has a good example to move on but this is just fun to think about i'm like i haven't thought about this for real like ever and i want to start just like putting more thought behind it so it's very fun to to get your guys' takes substack well your mic's super i heard substack and didn't hear the rest can you guys hear me yes yeah just launched a twitter competitor Uh, reads your mic is still quiet. I'm going to save the future podcast listeners. Make it louder. <laughs> Made some good music to interlude this morning. Don't worry. Soft, but really loudly. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, it's not even going to die. Just start screaming. Yeah. <laughs> Scream. Substack launched a Twitter competitor called Notes. Notes. That happened last week. Would we argue, in my mind, this is a good example of like, they went really deep. They were just doing newsletters and they were building for a very specific segment of the, of the market. And now they're going wide and they're saying, Hey, we're playing the broader social media game. Oh, 
Is that yeah. good decision, bad decision? What, how, what do you think led them to make that decision? I think that's a good case study to explore. I think it's an easy understanding, right? A business basically gets paid by doing the same thing over and over again for less time and energy and more money. And so at some point, it's like, we got this. What else can we add to this? And especially in such an interconnected world, it's like, okay, if we have, and I don't know the numbers GR, but if we have 10,000 writers, 100,000 writers, and we're making this much money, what's the first thing all those writers do? They post their Substack on Twitter. Okay, great. Given that Twitter's taken an absolute shit, could we now begin to start controlling the space where there's a little bit of conversation? We'll chuck X number of STEs, X amount of million at it. Let's see if we can do it. Um, and Amon, I, I would, I'd force, I'm more pushing on you here. Like I've got some exposure to corporate innovation and it's very gated. Like there are very specific things that have to be hit to like move through a corporate innovation or a university innovation timeline. And I think some of these newer companies in the creator economy could use a little bit of that infrastructure. Because the thing I keep pushing back with Mateo on is like, what would have to be true for a business like Beast to be like, we're all in on this wide thing? Is it a number? Is it a feeling? Is it like a competitor? And so that that's actually a really interesting thing. I think corporate innovation, if you can maybe speak to that, because I had some exposure to it through Kraft Heinz and a Whirlpool, and it was very structured. You cannot move forward to the next step of the chessboard unless you can show these things. Right. No, I, I think that's a good that's a good framework, at particularly more mature where you have a lot of the data points. You end up getting to, okay, what's the, you know, IOR on this project relative to my opportunity cost or my cost of capital, whatever. Um, at the early stage, ideally, oftentimes it's the founder saying, okay, I think this is clearly working based off of what I'm seeing with the numbers, what I'm seeing with users, what I'm seeing with profit, um, or sometimes all three of those things are still going against us, but I'm Jeff Bezos and I just have eye conviction and like, we're going to blow another billion dollars on this. Um, and so I don't know to what extent Jimmy or whoever is in that kind of seat to set some of those guidelines, but like, I do think you have to, to your point on opportunity costs, you're never going to be fully able to quantify, but Cornelius has a great point. Like you do need to have some of that structure of, okay, how the were we, what is the timeline that we're evaluating this on? What are the milestones? Are we on track to hitting those milestones? And I'm sure a lot of that's already in place. Um, but I think that's, that's definitely part of the structured approach of Especially like, is this working or do we want to? Mateo, there's a great piece as well that I'll share, but it was actually by the founder of WP Engine, which is like a really phenomenal, like kind of WordPress based plugin business. And he just talks about like ROI versus ROE, like return on effort. And he actually has a structure for like, do you have a scale up or do you have like an indie company? And I like said it to you, I actually did it myself. But there's actually a really cool calculation that he has. So I'll send that to you. I, yeah, found no, I really helpful. like that. I really yeah. like that. that was the natural inclination of like where some of these thoughts were going. Because like even off the blog, Cornelius and I have talked about this a bit. But I do think there is a like a gap of like 
a lot of companies that like I'm much more in tune with that are like very still startup mode, young founders, no structure. It's a feeling, sometimes a number, maybe both. Versus like corporate, very corporate end is like, these are the 36 parameters to hit. You move along this stage of the journey. Yeah. I think it's trying to learn from the best parts of that. Yeah. And figuring out how you can still do that in a fast paced environment in a way that's productive. That's making me reevaluate, right? I keep seeing the pendulum swing. And I think a lot of times, even when Jay and I were at AMA, we also were just like feeling, yeah, let's try this. Fuck it. Let's go. And I, I don't think, I mean, Jay, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like we never really had any type of structure for better or worse that we really used to evaluate the decision besides this is a good idea. Here's how we could expand it if it works. I feel like I agree with you. I feel like that's also a product of the size of the team, right? Like, I agree. Very different circumstance. When you've, got, when you've got a few people with a lot of autonomy, it's a lot easier to like make those decisions ad hoc just based off of gut because you have to trust that like you guys have all of the information that anybody on the team has and therefore like, who else is going to make that decision but you. Whereas... In a hundred person or thousand person company, uh, that information is distributed across the entire organization, right? So you deliver that process in order to make sure that like stupid. Yeah. Guys, this piece is caused by Jason Cohen. It's called, excuse me, is there a problem? So he kind of takes it from the kind of like, hey, are you solving a problem? He's got this amazing flow chart. Um, and it's a really interesting things that he kind of talks about. He talks about whether there's a plausible market, um, self-awareness. So the customers could know they have the problem, but do they care, right? Which I think is like absolutely formidable. And then he gets into like, how lucrative is it? What are they going to pay? And he basically boils it down to like a formula, which is really cool. So I'd really recommend like you look at that, Mateo, because I think that's really interesting. Like, are they going to pay? How long will they pay? And again, it's just a, there's obviously exceptions to every rule. Like I think he does a really nice job of kind of framing that. But he comes, he puts a couple companies through the burner. And the big thing that he talks about is this idea. I've never heard of this. Uh, Fermi, the Fermi estimation. Mm-hmm. But basically the idea of just like power of 10. So your customers either pay one, 10, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000, et cetera. So if they pay seven grand, forget it. It's between, it's bigger than one thousand less than ten thousand so he just uses those numbers which really breaks it down and you could only use the power of 10 but i really like this um so self-aware the willingness to solve the problem 0.01 if you agree or care 0.1 thought leaders care and evangelize 0.5 it's an introduced standard practice 1.0 almost impossible to find somebody who doesn't care there's actually some really good shit here um that i actually really liked so I'd throw that out there and I'll put that in the show notes. And then basically what you do is you multiply the scores um, because the effects compound and then you divide by 625,000. Don't ask me why you divide by 625,000. I don't know the blog post that well yet. But I really like that. Uh, I like the Sam Altman uh, mention, even though this is older, where he's like, yeah, sometimes you make looped and sometimes you make open AI. <laughs> well, who does anyone? Would anyone like to go next? Otherwise, I will. Just, I just thought I'd take it. Like, I, I really haven't had a topic for the last few weeks, so maybe I just thought I'd talk about what I'm up to. 
<laughs> um, but I'm going to like my first conference. QG hard. Yeah, there we go. Knew it. I'm going to my first conference. It's actually called it's actually called a weekend of jihad. Uh, but basically a conference for my favorite magazine this weekend. So I'm going to Asheville. It's Monocle's Weekender Conference. For those that don't know, Monocle was started in 2007 by this guy called Tyler Brule. They're pretty formidable kind of lifestyle media, bless you, cultural affairs business. And to my knowledge, this is their, their second only event in America, despite America being their biggest audience from a marketing and advertising perspective. So it's a pretty cool uh, agenda, wine tasting at the Biltmore Estate, which is like the biggest estate in America. Some really cool meals, a couple of like independent entrepreneurs. But yeah, I just wanted to share that I'm kind of excited to go. Um, I'm excited to meet a few heroes. And yeah, it's just kind of weird because I haven't been to a conference since like literally with Amon in 2018. So... Uh, I just wanted to share that. It's not much of a topic. I just thought maybe it sparked something, maybe around Asheville or kind of conference prep. But it's, it's definitely going to be interesting being a kind of attendee as opposed to the seat I found myself in for the last three, four years, which is being host and kind of curator. What are you, uh, why are you going? Like, what do you look forward to? I just wrote my first piece for them, uh, which has been a big dream of mine. And it just felt right. I've been speaking to, their founding bureau chief, Anne-Marie Gardner, she's become a kind of close mentor. She was like, fuck it, you should go, you know, go meet the team, go be engaging, go teach them something new. And I, I think really it's just to grow my relationship and the depth of my relationship with the power players and just to see how like a professional brand does what I've been doing for the last three, four years. I think it will be a, just a fun time. And I haven't been to Asheville. I've heard amazing things. I'm excited for the, the next pod Cornelius follow-up where it's either going to be raved about how great it was or just completely trashed. And I just don't see little girl. And I'm very yeah. excited. I don't know what the fuck these brands are doing. You're like, this was magic. Yeah. No, I, I think just, it's going to be magic. I think it's going to be magic. Like, I just think it's cool, man. Like, they put up the agenda. Maybe someone could pull up a screen share. But it's just like, it's just cool. Like, they're going to have a pop-up shop. Saturday morning is like coffee and newspapers. I was like, oh, fucking hell. That just sounds great. <laughs> I, I, I want to dive into this. Uh, you and I have talked about Monocle before. Yes. I'm very intrigued by Monocle's entire, like, world. World. Like, I'm most intrigued by the business model. But the business model is dependent on, like, this world and aesthetic that they build. I am curious because I feel like when I did more research, I was surprised by how ideological mm. it was. Um, not because I disagree with the ideology, but because I feel like you as a person are generally resistant to ideology. Mm. But you're a big fan of monocle. Yeah. Ideology might be a, the wrong word here, but I think you, you get what I'm... No, they've got a point of view. I, I'm with you. Yeah. What attracts you to Monocle over other brands uh, yeah. with like very specific points of view? And like, why have you let your guard down and, and, and embrace this one versus others? That's a great question. It's a great question. question. <laughs> uh, I, you'll be here all night. I think the first thing was Tyler. So Tyler Brulé's real name is not Tyler Brulé. Um, it's like Jason. Wait, that's crazy. Wait, why? Yeah. Wait, it's like Jason. And he's from... Are you, are you doxing him right now? No. <laughs> just, <laughs> he's just, what's going on? 
it's in it's, yeah it's it's just fascinating because i i think the guy i think the guy is one of the be best if not the best media entrepreneur of our, of our generation it, to be very honest um started wallpaper sold it to time in like 1999 um back at a time where there was no money in magazines so i just felt like i was kind of intrigued by tyler his name's not tyler it's jason um which is fascinating and he's from winnipeg canada and like this guy is like now the brand's like guys so i think there's just something about that of like you know me i'm always about creating things creating brands creating stories i think that's cool then to build monocle which now has eighty thousand subscribers nikkei who also own the ft or a strategic investor they've got books they've got shops i just think it's so cool i just i just really don't know of another brand that's done that when most media organizations are kind of dying and they don't do any social media they just do print so i just think it's cool and i'm just intrigued um and you're right they do have a point of view giard um but i think that that's why i've been won over is i just find it really different you'll never see them on substack ever You'll never see them on social media. You'll never see them on the app store. And I just think that's so unique for this kind of digital era we live in. I'm waiting for the, uh, the like 70 year monocle edition because this is one of the, this life 70 year anniversary collection is one of my favorite coffee table books. Cool. I'm just picturing this for monocle. Yeah, dude. I think that's why Jay, is that a good answer? No, I think it's a good answer. I think it's, I, I think Monocle has done a very good job. I, I actually agree with you. Like it's a hot take, but I agree with you that Tyler is probably the best media entrepreneur of like this generation of media companies like yeah. that have started in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, and I think that the, they are one of the few that has actually managed to like put forward a very specific like point of view there was this really cool tyler the creator video oh my god uh, <laughs> is this, this is jason with a y on the way real name tyler <laughs> that's another jason it's really jason I just his middle name it's not like he changed his name like <laughs> his name's jason he was shy jason tyler. my sniper what it's like is drake it? it's like drake aubrey drake graham right Right. Anyway, yeah, you guys can call me Dempsey. Also, Jay, I gotta say, there's there's a couple of people that I've met in the in the media world. Susie Watford comes to mind. Caitlin Thompson comes to mind. Will Lewis comes to mind. And like, they all really admire him. So I think there's just a level of like the people I admire also really admire him. And I think he's a great salesman, as I've been told. So I'm just excited. I really like the team. And yeah, I'm just looking forward to like. I'm just so curious how it's gonna go for them. Because Asheville, like, what's really interesting about Asheville is I think they've been doing an advertising partnership with the city of Asheville now for, like, a year and a half. And this is part of the deal. Um, so it's a really unique business model from, like, an event stamp. Yeah, without... I, I know too much, but you can kind of get the understanding. And what's really interesting about Monaco is it's, it actually started as an agency. So the agency is Wink Creative. And so all the advertising that you see in the magazine is actually through the agency. And, that, and that's a really interesting play. Like there's, there's no other creative agency I know that has a magazine. Right, right, right. 
or a 24-7 fucking radio station. Yeah, the radio station is dope. I was listening to it, actually. Yeah, it's it's nuts. You got, like, Rolex, UBS, so like, partners. I'm just like, how? Very luxury. Yeah, it's not. ZipRecruiter. LinkedIn premium. How to feel I'm personally attacked for the ZipRecruiter one, because we definitely did just do that. Hey, today's sponsor, LVMH. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally. Anyway, let's close on Asheville. Who's up next? We've got 15 minutes left. We're actually doing good on time. <laughs> Do I look like a Jason? Jason. The... Honestly, with the J-A-Y, I kind of see it for you. I told you my name was Jason. Was... <laughs> yeah, I'm like a Jason. <laughs> I'm all, bring us into your world. I mean, you guys are going live soon, right? I got a preview of the demo a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Very impressed. Yeah, man, it's uh, got, got so much to do. It's funny because when you talk about conferences, I have a, I'll be going to a conference in June, late June. Uh, and so now I'm just like realizing like, okay, I got to do a lot of work to get to, to get ready for that and uh, and spending some time thinking about uh, marketing, positioning, stuff like that. Uh, are you doing a booth? Are you doing a booth like Rubino does? We So we are getting a booth. Uh, what's that been like? Well, shipping hardware is a nightmare. <clears throat> Fees everywhere. Um, but incredible exposure. There are, when you have to find the right conference with the right, where they say they have buyers attending. Some conferences claim that's the case. It's not every conference. Um, so very be very picky because they can get expensive, but I think they're valuable. What's um, What's been best for you? It's, it, the, the conference we're going to go to, it's kind of the... Big annual one for all like financial aid folks, and we're like we're smack dab in the very middle of all of our competitors, so it should be nice. it should be fun. But uh, but yeah, what's what, what tips you got for me? Oh man, I mean, given your product, I mean, it's probably going to be presented on a screen or some literature there. So and it all just boils down to who's present in the booth and how you're interacting with people looking at your stuff because then your booth will look the same as everybody else's, right? We were at a conference. We were one of two hardware companies. Everybody else had software. So you have to pull in their attention. So the design of the booth is really important. Whoever's designing your booth, make sure it looks great. Um, and you have to be really interactive. We didn't even, we had the option for chairs. We did not get chairs because you just want to be standing up and engaging uh, with everybody. I think that's the most important. Is there like a conference hat like... Part of me thinks, like, if you just hired a barista that did dope fucking espresso and you got free espresso every day. Yeah, we'll do get, that. You, do people play that way? Yes, they do. Does it work? It, yeah, it brings people in and then they leave with something branded. And that shit would work on me. There's a rep nearby to talk to them about what right. it is they're selling. Right. Yeah, it does work on people. I'm on, I think those environments are really hard. It just, I mean, I get the value. I think it's really worth it, but on a booth side, like I've never done that. But it's just thousands, right? But yeah, boots. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. I mean, I don't think there's going to be a obscene number of uh, of booths at this conference, and I think from some of our um, like other tech peers, they've said they've they've gotten a good, uh, definitely a good value out of this. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. Well, you know, we'll test. We'll test the waters. We'll see how it goes. What would be uh, your dream, Amon? Like, what, what what would have to happen for that to be like, okay, that was a success? It's pretty easy. It's just sales and 
pipeline. Um, but uh, I mean, to, to some extent, I, I think it'll also be interesting to learn a bit uh, about this space from some of the other folks. There's some like uh, things that we've been, uh, I've, I've been in touch with the person who's like putting together the conference overall. And so he's invited me to some things that um, should be really interesting for like off menu stuff is what you're talking about. Yeah. Like just, uh, it's funny. Like the email said, like closed door meeting. And I was like, all right, let's relax a little bit. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we'll learn a lot and I think we'll also see upfront and close to, uh, some of our competitors, what they're up to and, uh, how they present themselves, how they pitch themselves. Cause I know they use conference as a really big, um, driver, uh, no, so. totally. that would be my top tip is just like forget the booth all the value most i think most of conferences or most of the value of conferences go like happens and goes before it even starts it's the vip dinners it's the speakers dinners right it's the so-and-so's hosting tonight because he lives around the corner yeah so i think you're right hug the organizers be as close as you can and just and be like how was the speakers dinner last night Mm-hmm. or where's when's the speaker's dinner taking place like even if they're not doing one, like ask you you're not going to sound like an idiot and then if they're not doing one oh you're not doing a speaker's dinner oh we should totally do that like that's what i found and it's kind of horrible as an attendee when you're halfway through day one and you see all these people having these great connections you're like how the fuck do you guys know shut like this thing yeah, three hours uh, ideas week comes to mind right yeah totally yeah. Yeah. and wall street j but yeah I'm sure you'll be great. Is there any is there any particular person you're very excited to meet? Well, there's a few of the folks that that we've been um, in touch with, advisors, prospects that we're going to meet up with at the conference, do some dinners, lunches. Uh, so I think that would be fun. Wonderful. Appreciate Crescent, baby. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Send Cornelius will shit on how the conference was terrible, but you got some deal flow out of it. So yeah, you're okay. Yeah. The way. Hey. Wait, where is this one? This one's in San Diego. Got it. Dude, Amon, I'm going to be in LA for VidCon at the same time. So, me halfway. Late. Are you going to be there late? Uh, late June. Late June, early July. Uh, I think it's more late June, but. Let me know. Let me know. Please do. Yeah. Deep versus wide, Mateo. Deep versus direct <laughs> conference. I, I think there's a business here. And uh, it's something here. Let me tell you. Yeah, I really do. <laughs> I really do. Rude, do you want to close this out? No, it would just be political. Somebody else goes it out. Oh, I mean, go on. Throw you something different out of that. Can you tell us about uh, Tucker Carlson? And yeah, he's gone. He's gone. <laughs> the only person I watched at Severance, though. The only person I watched on Tucker Carlson's departure was Megan Kelly, because who he replaced who she suggested be replaced with when she left. Well, he got her spot. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't, it just doesn't seem clear why he's gone. A lot of people like Megan Kelly think that Tucker will only advantage from this departure. And I don't know who they're going to replace them with. And I, because I've seen in the Wall Street Journal, like part of this centers on the lawsuit that Fox just paid out. But as Megan Kelly was saying, Tucker was like, the least <clears throat> he was not fanning the flames. Rhea Bartiromo was fanning the flames. Right. And Laura Ingram, all these crazy people, Mark Le- uh, Levin from the Levin report, like 
these people were fanning the flames, it was less so Tucker. He was calling out Trump's attorney as a liar when she was making these claims. So it is interesting to see the media talk about his departure. And, like, they're just shitting all over him. Not what happens? So, like, is this, like, I don't know. I work in NBA terms, as I think Jihad does sometimes. So, like, in my eyes, this is, like, the controversial star free agent is on the market. This is, like, Kyrie Irving's up for a max extension. Like, where does he go? Like, who takes him? No, it's it's way more simple than that. I think the FT, I'll send the FT piece. Fox just paid out a big amount of money. And they're a bit, yeah. yeah. But this guy just has so many fucking eyeballs. I assume it's, it's most. Yeah, he by multiples during Pride. Right? So, dip- but like, what happens? Does he do his own thing? Is it like a truth social spinoff? Like, Fox's, down? Fox's view is they'll find another star, right? Fox's view is like, I get it from Fox's standpoint. They're like, we'll throw someone on the time, we'll get used to it. But I'm thinking from Tucker's standpoint, like, what is next for him? What happens when this goes down? First of all, it doesn't make sense to me that, like, the reason they fired him was for financial reasons at all. Because, like, okay, the lawsuit happened. Fox News watchers don't dislike, <laughs> like, Zucker Carlson. Like, if anything, he is still going to make them just as much, if not more, money. So it's either he was asking for too much money, and they said, okay, F you, we're going to replace you with somebody else. Or something else happened that we just, like, don't know about. Yeah, his real name is not Tucker. Um, I will say though, in light of all of this, I saw like a, uh, we got six minute clip of him giving a talk at the heritage foundation or something. And it is insane to me how much more like articulate and smart and sane he sounds in that sort of setting versus being on like Fox, right? Like the watch him on debate sink. Uger, I think, from the Young Turks. He did it like three years ago at Politicon. Again, you wouldn't recognize him. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah, recognize him. Same thing for like the CNN guys. Like you see these guys talk on CNN versus in like a neutral territory. And it's like night and day. Like obviously these guys are very educated and have are very articulate, had to like do a lot of work to get to where they were. And then they just turn them into like monsters <laughs> when they're going on these like television shows. It's crazy. I think the I think Jay did I I think and I think it's a financial reason. I think from what I read in the FT at least, the view was he was getting bigger than the football team, he was getting bigger than the basketball team. No one can be bigger than Murdoch, no one can make Rupert look bad. So he's getting moved on. It's more of an example interesting theory. Um than than actually like a fundamental revenue play. And I haven't looked at like the documents, but I think like his text messages and his private messages didn't necessarily like leave the organization in the right space. What's really interesting is I think a better question is if they lose the next one, which I think is 2.6 billion, well, what happens then? Yeah. Uh, Cause I know this one based on Shamart's analysis was what half of their, didn't they have 1.4 billion 20, in cash? 20 over 20% of yeah. what they had cash on hand yeah. towards the settlement. I think it was close to 50, but yeah. Um, they had a couple of billion, billion of cash. Four billion of cash. So you could be looking at half of that cash gone in these uh, in these settlements. And I think just the timing of the settlements is really interesting too. Like they were literally about to go and testify. Yeah, that's very interesting. Which would have been great. Do you remember that during COVID? That was just a fuck ton of um, juicy days on on the hill nobody cares about don levin leaving got it 
Who's that? <laughs> why did I didn't, haven't heard as much about that one? Like we don't know why he got kicked off either. Cool. Hey, your old boss. What do you think about Jamie? Dunn? Oh, this goes, back, this goes back to what we what? were saying, guys, before. But this was definitely timed. And they were like, "Oh, they just did it." Wait, let me go. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. I, Final I, thoughts I, on I, Diamond. I do. Your old boss. He's gonna testify on Epstein. Final thoughts on Diamond. Uh, it's gonna go as expected, right? I mean, it's. it's He's just gonna go work from home. He'll sound detached from his relationship. He didn't manage it. Yeah. None of those decisions were led by him, and probably not pointing any fingers to his colleagues either. Boy. Yeah. These testimonies don't turn out to any admissions at all, right? Ever. Right. It'll be interesting to watch. Hey, so your question though about like what is next? I feel like it, that's also like pretty obvious as well. Homie's gonna, homie's gonna do like a speaking tour, write a book, might do some like heritage foundation or some think tank like residency or something. He'll host a conference. Yeah, they'll guys file. But that's the disgruntled, fired, controversial media star or just yeah. media. Jordan Belfort. Yeah, I watch too much news, but you know who his competitor, whoever the future. At Fox is at 7 p.m. in our slot, in his slot. They're going up against, ready, Charles Barkley. Oh, yeah, because he's going to be on uh, what now? On MSNBC? CNN. CNN. Time slot. Dude, Charles really, Gail King. Charles really was like, oh, guys, I'm done. Just to secure a better bag. And you know what? We support it. Good for him. <laughs> Charles Barkley on CNN is going to be atrocious. Charles Barkley on Inside the NBA Funny television of all time. <laughs> He's gonna be like, "What's happening at the border is unacceptable." But those San Antonio women, let me tell you, <laughs> the old women in San Antonio. Yeah. Let's, let's let's end on this. Who's gonna win the NBA playoffs this year? Lakers. Oh, that's easy. LeBron. <laughs> Hell no. She has a fanboy. Don't listen to that garbage. I'm going. Really boring. It's the Celtics. They're going to win. It's upsetting. No one likes the Celtics. We're not who did it. Um, the Smith City. Sorry? Choose the City, Mike. You have a good shot. We'll do the Celtics. The Suns are still in it, right? Suns are still in it. Yeah. I'm riding on the Suns. I had a friend tell me if the Suns were in the finals, they would take me to a game. And so I'm hardcore bandwagoning the Suns right now, all the way through. Wow. Wow. The bronze sexual in me. Is all the way. Dude, LeBron isn't even his name, bro. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, I love you all. This is fun. You used to be Matthew, right? You used yeah, to I know. Matthew. I'm <laughs> telling you. Oh, that's a name. It's 20 years. In 20 years, when they have the documentary on Mateo, Cornelius is going to get on, and they're going to be like, oh, what fascinated you about Mateo? And he's like, well, Mateo's not even his real name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now he's just M. <laughs> he loses the letter. As a motion. I'm just mate soon. It's easy for Cornelius. Yeah, mate. Cool. All right, gents. Great episode. Rubes and I have got to jump to dinner. Have fun. See you guys. Love you. Bye, boys. See you. Good night.